Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Amanda Bullock, and for Andrew Proctor, I'm Director of Public Programs at Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland, Oregon. This is one of four special episodes that are being broadcast exclusively on the Archive Project podcast as part of the 2021 Portland Book Festival. This year's festival will also feature live streamed conversations every night the week of November 8th. If you miss anything, replays are available, and we are returning to the Portland Art Museum and the stages at Portland 5 for an in-person festival day on November 13th. To learn more about attending the festival in person or virtually, visit literary-arts.org. And keep an ear out for conversations from this year's festival events on future episodes of the Archive Project. Crystal Ligori has been behind the scenes of almost every Archive Project episode. She's produced our show since our second season in 2016. For our special 2021 Portland Book Festival podcast series, Crystal stepped up to the mic to interview two novelists with very similar and very different books from this year. A.K. Blakemore's The Manning Tree Witches is based on real people and events from 1643 in East Anglia in England. And Rivka Galchin's Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch begins in 1618 in Germany and centers on Katharina, the mother of famous mathematician Johannes Kepler. As you can guess from the titles, witch trials are a central part of both stories, which take place in similar times and places, but take very different but complementary approaches to their subjects. They talk about the process of basing fiction on historical documents and persons, consider what it must have been like to really truly believe in the devil as a force in the world, which sounds scary, and discuss the meaning of these stories both in their own time and for our time and the way these very individual experiences are wrapped up in national and global circumstances. Let's join AK, Rivka, and Crystal. Thank you guys both so much for being here, Rivka and AK. Your books are both about witches. They're both set in roughly the same time period, and I really want to talk about their similarities, their differences, their intersections, and also kind of the entire vibe of which is then and kind of now, I I guess. I want to start off with a big overarching question for you both. What is a witch? Both in how it's popularly defined in the time period of your book and what your own definition is. So it's uh, obviously quite, quite difficult. Um, and I think one of the reasons we feel at uh, such a remove from kind of the witch crazes of the 17th century now and why uh, we we almost fetishize them in terms of the, the sort of aesthetics mm. um, is because what they believed a witch was in the broadest sense is something the vast majority of people would now find it impossible to believe in, in the sense of it was someone who had commerce with the devil. Um, and if you don't believe in the devil, which, like I say, the vast majority of people now don't, right. um, that it, it is a ridiculous, it's, it's a ridiculous accusation to level against someone. But at this time in England, so my book set uh, in the 1640s, which was um, during the English Civil War, um, but obviously, you know, during a much broader time period than that, the sense of um, observation and judgment by God and the sense that the devil moved through the world intentionally uh, trying to corrupt people was was very real in people's lives. And that was something I found in, incredibly fascinating from sort of psychological point of view. 
what would it have been like to have lived your life with the idea that the devil was was almost a real person, an active force in your life? He could appear in your dreams. He could appear as a man. You wouldn't know where he was or what he was trying to do. So I suppose what a witch was then um, and, and what uh, these women were prosecuted for was traffic with the devil. It was heresy, basically, mm-hmm. um, was, was the charge. And what a witch now is, is, and that's a really difficult question as well, obviously. <laughs> um, but uh, a friend of mine, the writer Rebecca Tomash, um, who's done a lot of research on witchcraft and then sort of witches are her, her area of study, has a really kind of neat way of putting it that I somewhat sort of paraphrase in my book, uh, which is that a witch is someone who makes things happen by saying them. And obviously that's a much broader definition, but one I, I quite like, and in a fairly self-regarding way, I guess a lot of <laughs> writers would quite like. Um, yes, someone who manifests things and brings things into being from nothing. Yeah, I just, I thought that was just such a like, well framed and, and kind of shiveringly accurate and beautiful description And I I think like the other side of it, I guess, is like what makes someone a witch? And also, I know something we were both kind of thinking through in in words and on the page is kind of what makes someone see witches, which is kind of the other side. You know, what is it that generates the vision like that? And one of the kind of offshoots that I thought was interesting when I was kind of reading is just that how upsetting it is to see power located somewhere where one doesn't want to see it. Um, And I sort of feel like that might be part of why again and again, it wasn't only women who were burned um, for commerce with the devil, but it was mostly women or overwhelmingly women. And, and then you sort of see that there's this kind of irreducible um, sexual power and sexual aversion that can't sort of be taken away from women. And it's sort of disturbing to see it. And I think this just like has an interesting way of changing over time. Like with all of the kind of vaccine talk, I, I was reading about how all these people who worked with cows, all these dairy maids, wouldn't get smallpox. And it was just seen as kind of devilish. Their health was sort of seen as devilish. And it sort of wasn't understood. They were kind of incidentally inoculated from cowpox in a way that people eventually learned how to get on top of. But seeing that health and not understanding it not understanding why it was happening to this lower class group of people and not to other people and just how disturbing it is to see power located somewhere that seems unsettling to the perceiver yeah it's nice to tell you in person Rivka how much I loved your book um I absolutely adored it um and uh I think the point about power is a really interesting one because with the British witch hunts, I feel like there's power and powerlessness at work. Because I think very often something people say about witch hunts is, oh, it could have happened to anyone. And after researching it for a little while, you sort of think, well, no, that wasn't the case. Power and and the fact that very often these women were uh, women who were living without male protection for whatever reason. Yeah, I was totally thinking about that when I was reading both of these books that the women who are accused of being witches are often poor. They're widows. They're they're single women. They live 
outside of acceptable social norms of the time. They're not claimed per se. And I feel like that element also leaves it open for, you mentioned temptation and sexual desire. And how were you thinking about AK, the desire and the policing of it. I feel like your main character, because she is a younger woman, whereas Rivka, yours is a widow and an older woman in her 70s. And so I think it's a little bit of a different dynamic in each book. So I guess um, because I, I was, well, we were both working from historical documents. Um, and in my case, one of the starting points is kind of my my main antagonist, the Witchfinder General, is a real person was responsible for the persecution and death of uh, at least 200 women and men um, in about a five-year period. Um, And he wrote The Discovery of Witches, his essentially his own guide to witch hunting. And I became really fascinated by this book uh, because there is such a sensual charge to his language. Um, And I guess it kind of, this kind of connects to what Rivka was saying about women having kind of an irreducible sexuality or repulsion um, that can't be controlled or taken away from them. And for him, it's hard. There have been lots of kind of cultural artifacts about the Witchfinder General and and sort of the obvious path they go down is that he was a lech uh, who used witch hunting as a way to kind of get close to the bodies of women and sort of hold this exploitative power over them which is sort of kind of uh, an obvious route to go down, but it's also one that when you read his own writing seems kind of impossible to avoid. It was his obsession with witches definitely had this really powerful uh, sexual element to it. It sort of connects with what I was saying earlier about the reality of the devil and temptation and gods to, to the Puritan mind. Um, in England at this time. And it's strange because I I almost came away from writing it and from my research thinking, God, yeah, obviously it was much harder to be a woman, but it must have been incredibly difficult psychologically to be a Puritan man as well. Um, Have to sublimate natural sexual desires into something very much other. (laughs) Mm. Um, So that was something... I was kind of interested in foregrounding in my writings. I sort of, I'm not outside of Rivka's book um, and a couple of others. I'm actually not a massive fan of witch trial books. Um, Mm. um, It's possibly to a certain extent or or it contributed to why I wrote one perhaps. Um, And one of the things that is sort of my bugbear about them is very often they begin by setting their main character, their protagonist apart from like the religious milieu of the world they live in. It's kind of like, well, other people believed in the devil, but I don't, that sort of thing, which seemed to me kind of like an easy way out of actually trying to navigate as a writer what the psychology of these people was and having as a protagonist, my protagonist, a very young and kind of sexually naive woman. It it just seemed so fascinating to me the idea of kind of trying to navigate nascent sexuality kind of under the eye of God uh, was something I was really fascinated by. (laughs) Kalong answer, sorry. (laughs) No, that's okay. I I feel like both Rebecca and Katarina, what's interesting is I feel like they both wrestle with this idea at points in each of your books where they're like, maybe I am a witch. (laughs) Yeah, I think you've sort of gotten at that 
this strange kind of satiny quality to to seeing the world in terms of um, good and bad, or even power and powerlessness. That those are on the one hand legitimate frameworks, but also unstable and and shifting. And that and I think like it's interesting to think about how, given the array of choices of how to understand one's power, one's relationships with others, that the psychologically soothing one isn't always going to be the good one, that, that you could see how those would, would tremble a little bit. You know, you don't want to be kind of compelled by a monster, but the Witchfinder General is a kind of monster, and you, he is sort of quite compelling. And, and I think part of what it feels like is that someone has come in and occupied this collectively written psychological space, and then there's someone who comes in and controls it. And it's kind of amazing to watch that occur and to see the way that everyone sort of is weaving, kind of writing this story together. And then someone comes and kind of inhabits it bodily. Like with Katerina, one thing I thought was interesting about it, an older woman versus a younger woman, or in her case in particular, is a lot of the testimony showed that the people who found her to be witchy were basically people who, you can see the psychology so clearly, who had kind of neglected to help her. So again, mm -hmm. again, you come across these situations in which someone was saying, well, I had a card and she didn't have a card and she asked if she could borrow my card to carry out her hay. And I said no, and then terrible things happened to me. And so you sort of see, like you see the psychological narrative being written and then you see the lights switching. So they were like, well, I could carry this as a burden about how I feel about myself, or I could reverse the lighting and feel really great about myself <laughs> and, and switch it around. And, and it's interesting to see the way that both of our central characters themselves are not excluded from this kind of shifting of the, of the kind of moral valence on the story just so that they can understand things in a new way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Rivka, you mentioned trials, and obviously both you and AK's books are focused on trials throughout the story. Do you think that the legal system and the idea of justice is actually making the situations worse for the characters in your book? So it's particularly interesting, I think, in terms of the English witch trials, because there were lots of very uh, kind of key differences between how things tended to play out in um, England and on the continent. And the key one, um, which is sort of reflected in our books, is that traditional torture methods, you know, the rack, thumbscrews, things like that, have been outlawed in England since the reign of Queen Elizabeth. So you couldn't torture people to confession through, through as, as I say, like traditional means. Obviously, the Witchfinder General came up with his own methods. And interestingly, you would think that being the case, there would be far fewer confessions from alleged witches in England. But again, that that's not the case, that still the majority of people who were hung as witches, and again, they were hung in England rather than burnt, hmm. had confessed. So the 1640s, when the Civil War was kind of raging, it was known as the upside down time, this kind of time of legal, political chaos, People didn't necessarily know who was in charge of the country or who had the authority to put you in prison on any given day. Um, and there's a lot of historical debate around whether or not someone like the Witchfinder General would have been able to do what he did at any other time in English history. Um, because 
he very much kind of arrived in Manningtree and fills a vacuum in terms of authority and kind of then travels around the south of England up to the Midlands of England, basically kind of sowing chaos. And partly that's because there are a lot of men off at war, so there are vastly more unprotected women everywhere. Mm. And secondly, it's because no one really understood who who the authority figure was in any given community at that time. So I think it was a particularly unique circumstance for witch hunts to be occurring within. And um, in terms of kind of the English history of witch hunts, it sort of rises to a peak during the reign of Elizabeth, then kind of sinks right, right down again. And then in this 10 year period over the Civil War, shoots right back up. Um, to the most that have ever occurred in a single year in terms, you know, women being prosecuted under maleficium laws. Rivka, in your book, the time period is, you know, it's a, a similar sort of time frame in a different area of Europe, but it's also equally bleak and rife for accusations. I feel like when we think about famine, when we think about detriment to our society, we're sort of looking for somewhere to place the blame. And oftentimes these women were that scapegoat. Yeah, and you know, it was sort of an interesting form of time travel. I mean, just for me as a 21st century person, because I feel like I have this programming from the way I was sort of brought up and the time period I was brought up in to think of the weakening and destabilizing of a central authority as a kind of optimistic opening up. And that, that that framework doesn't really work in these moments that we're that we're looking at. And, and and one thing that I found interesting reading the literature is how different it was from one locality to another, um, and how insufficient economic hardship, as we like to say today, was as an explanatory force for where things were worse and where things were better. It's just a very insufficient explanation. Um, One thing that was strangely moving about the legal system around Katerina's trial was that there were all these kind of quite good faith efforts to make witch trials more fair. There weren't really many people saying witches aren't real or this is absurd, although there were people making kind of arguments similar to that, saying witches are just women who have the delusion that they have these powers, but they don't actually have these powers. That was like an argument that was out there. But there were these efforts saying like, okay, well, we see that local vindictiveness can play a role. So we're going to have these trials adjudicated distant from where they are happening. So you see these kind of quite good faith and what I like to think of as almost boring interventions (laughs) to try to make it better. You sort of see that they recognize that something had gone awry. But of course, like these interventions are sometimes absurdly ineffective, like the laws of the Carolina, which ruled Katerina's trial, tried to say, well, we can't just take anyone's word seriously. We should we should discount the testimony of women <laughs> and children. And you know that it comes from a good place. You know, it comes mm-hmm. from this attempt to kind of... The attempt of it. fairness, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. These books have so much in common, but the tone is really different. Rivka, you chose almost this modern, ironic tone for your book. It reminded me a little bit of like reality TV. And that's not a diss because I love reality TV. (laughs) It was so salacious and gossipy and very tongue in cheek. How did you decide to go for that in the writing of Everyone Knows Your Mother's a Witch? 
you know, it's sort of absurd, but the one thing I felt really confident about when I was writing this book was the voice. The voice came quite clearly to me. I think I, one, I wanted to write a modern book. I knew I was writing a modern book. It was a translation in language and time and space. And and for me, that was the way it, it was going to work. And it was very specifically in my mind, Johannes Kepler's mother. It wasn't just anyone. And I really associate that mathematical mind. And he did sort of identify with her much more than with his father. Um, and, and there's like a lot of indication she wasn't educated, obviously, but that she had a very, what I like to think of as this mathematical mind, which I think of as someone who is very sensitive to patterns and takes great pleasure in rupturing the pattern. And that's a comic mind on some level. Mm. Um, that was how her voice came to me with this kind of conviction that it was a viable voice. Yeah. AK, your book is much more somber in tone. How did you go about finding Rebecca's voice? Because even though it is somber, she does have I mean, just the introduction page of her describing her mom. I was like, ooh, that that cuts. So she does have a very sharp tongue, I guess is the easiest way to put it. Um, yeah. Another thing that I, I kind guess I kind of knew um straight away going into writing it was that I didn't want any of the the witches. When I say witches, I kind of just mean shorthand for women accused of being witches, <laughs> for clarity. Um, I didn't want them to be necessarily good people hmm. because you don't need to be a good person <laughs> to deserve sympathy when horrible things happen to you, obviously. And like what Rivka said earlier about uh, disrupting these dichotomies between good and evil and this kind of very Manichaean way of looking at things. Um, evil witch finder in the big black hat, lovely poor women who are just trying to get on with their lives. Um, because... In the trial documents I was working with, you get the sense that they, you know, these women, they were troublemakers. <laughs> uh, they were interfering. They did have sharp tongues. There's a, there's a brilliant bit. Um, I didn't manage to work it into the book, but uh, Mother Clark, um, Elizabeth Beddingfield was her, her real name. Um, she It's after she's confessed to being a witch and she says that she was visited by the devil in the shape of a man a man in a coat with black tips, I believe it is. And uh, John Stearns, one of the interrogators, gestures to the witchfinder general and says, a man like this. Mm. And she says, no, 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 way better looking than him. <laughs> no, not yes. like that. <laughs> not like it. No, no, no. Much better. You know, it, it's one of these, it's kind of hard to quite interpret, but it just seems so much like, a subtweet, a mean joke that you could see someone making on Twitter today. <laughs> and it's hard not to read it as this kind of um, gesture of defiance from a woman in a very desperate situation. Yeah. Um, so I, I knew that I didn't want them to be helpless in the sense of, I think, victimhood sort of this this kind of retrospective victimhood that has been applied to the vic the victims of witch hunts ends up flattening them into this kind of uh, dirty white nightgowned mass and actually kind of dehumanizing them to an extent hmm. so i suppose it, it kind of developed from from there and yeah. in some ways uh 
Rebecca is sort of the, the least interesting, I guess, of the main of the main characters to me in some ways. But in the only way she's described in um, the trial documents is uh, Rebecca West, a maid, daughter of the Beldam West. She was fascinating to me because she's the only one that we don't know was executed of these Manningtree women. Um, there's no record of her execution, but we do have her confession. Um, so it's quite likely that, as as kind of happens in the book, what she did was confess, implicate her mother and her friends, and thus somehow avoided execution. Hmm. Um, and that was really fascinating to me, and I knew I wanted that to sort of be the central drama of the novel, um, how how a young woman could come to that decision um, and, and what circumstances might force her to and how she might feel about it. In both these books, the time spent waiting for the trial to happen feels like especially important to call out. I don't know if because some of this may have been crafted during the pandemic, if that seeped into these novels, kind of the uh, unknowing of our fate. I think that there's like really nothing more excruciating than suspense. I actually don't even, I can't even read certain kinds of suspense. I find them too painful. <laughs> and one thing that was actually like, and I, I know that AK and I were both thinking about this. I felt that I had to manage not letting the book be like a sort of pornography of suffering. Mm. Um, and then the waiting was part of it. And I felt like, Yes, there is a lot of waiting. Um, but I remember in the actual historical record with Katerina, for example, she actually waits six years. The whole family is in kind of state of suspended crisis for six years. And I, I didn't change it, but I did kind of wave my hands to condense it so that it was humanly relatable. I actually almost couldn't relate to six years of that kind of suspense. And I thought something has to be done. <laughs> so it, it's not just like, a Megillah of horrible things happening to this woman. Yeah, I had the same problem. In fact, like po possibly an even worse problem, which was that all of my main characters ended up in prison. Um, and I visited the cell where they were kept under Colchester Castle. It is, um, as kind of I describe in my book, it is literally a very small cell, completely underground with no windows. Um, and the only light they would have had was a candle. And they were kept there for about a year and a half hmm. with likely absolutely no access to, to the outside world at all. Um, and you think, how on earth are you meant to write that? <laughs> um, just literally, how do you, you know, <laughs> how do you do that? Um, so I also had to do the, the waving of the hands and the condensing of time. <laughs> when I was sort of thinking about all of this, it was seemed like the most nightmarish part of the whole ordeal it was absolute sensory deprivation and obviously disease and a lot of women died, uh, particularly again, this kind of comes back to the civil war and that the legal process was slowed massively. Hundreds of women died while in prison awaiting trial in England. It's just very horrific. There's a, there's a nice memorial, very small memorial at Colchester Castle now, uh, which is one of the few of its kind in England um, to victims of witch hunts. What do you think that we can learn today from these stories of women accused of witchcraft? Rivka? There is something to me what was quite, in retrospect, overwhelming and maybe drew me to the story in terms of why it felt urgent to me in the present day. 
was just being so up close with how inconsequential um, truth and reasoning were, because that that felt very contemporary to me to to be uh, kind of sh- shocked by that. Um, for me, it's it's maybe something well, not not uniquely English. I think something we've seen here, um, perhaps in in a more subtle way than it's happened in America, is. Uh, a sort of disintegration of solidarity between communities and across communities and particularly along class lines. And that was something that is reflected in these stories, I think. As Rivka said earlier, this idea of um, who is given help and who is denied help in a very insular community. And particularly when uh, religious justification or religious drives towards charity collapse, people find ways to justify withdrawing charity and withdrawing solidarity from other people around them. So that was something I thought was very relevant in kind of a conservative England where we've had decades of the demonization of people receiving social support from the government. And and that part of that was also to do with the process of othering how you have to make someone not a human being anymore before you do horrible things to them. And how that was part of what happened to these women. They weren't women anymore, they were witches. And that could justify the sleep deprivation torture they endured, throwing them in prison, hanging them eventually. That's something that we very much see now. In England, it's most obviously uh, directed towards refugees. And I've I've never really had time for this uh, we are the daughters of the witches you could not burn thing uh, sort of leaves me a bit cold because I've often thought the women who were actually uh, accused of witchcraft and, and hung as witches probably have less in common with a white middle class woman now and more in common with, as I say, a refugee. AK, Rivka, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. And I loved both Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch and the Manning Tree Witches. Thank you very much. This has been a special 2021 Portland Book Festival episode of Literary Arts, The Archive Project, a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Our Portland Book Festival special episodes include conversations with Editor and poet John Freeman and three writers, Jakuta Alikovazovich, Lana Bostasich, and Alexander Heyman, with roots in the Balkans on change through the specific lens of language and translation. Our archive project producer, Crystal Ligori, talks to novelists Rivka Galchin and A.K. Blakemore about their new witch books. Four panelists from the 2017 festival, Kava Akbar, Melissa Phoebos, Megan Steelstra, and Marissa Siegel, Reunite to continue their conversation about wounds and wonders and writing. Grace Bonney, creator of Design Sponge, leads a discussion on aging with three of the featured women from her new book, Collective Wisdom. Lisa Congdon, Nyakman Nyo, Sunoko Sakai. Tune in at The Archive Project and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for Radio and Podcast with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Literary Arts marketing staff, Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. 
Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another special Portland Book Festival podcast episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.